You're listening to music from National Geographic's new limited series, Barkskins. Today on The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast, we have three special guests from Barkskins, actors David Thewlis and Marsha Gay Harden, and series creator Elwood Reed. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. How is everyone holding up in their relative circumstances? Marsha, how are you doing? You look very professional. We're doing great. We've got puzzles going here and baking and sewing and soap making and all kinds of crafts. And we're just lucky to be, you know, sheltered in a really nice place. Good. And how's, how about the, the gentlemen, David and Elwood? How are you guys? Uh, I'm okay here in the UK. Um, everything's fine for me personally. It's a little confusing out there in the country, but our government are keeping us very entertained with their um, lack of information. Um, <laughs> Which is a, a a daily soap opera we're all we're all enjoying and despairing in. And Elwood, you're you're kind of tucked away in the wilds of of America. Tell us where you are. I'm in Montana, and I'm running a small bed and breakfast uh, for my children. I have I'm not kidding you. I have five kids, and then two boyfriends have now joined us. So uh, I have probably nine or ten. I'm making dinner and cooking and cleaning for nine or ten people every night. It's, uh, wow, fun. That sounds like a great concept for your next show. So let's make sure you're taking notes. <laughs> Can I play one of the boyfriends? <laughs> yeah, yes. The boyfriends are actually very helpful. They cook, they clean, they, they, they're very good at like uh, technology and audio visual stuff. It's pretty nice. Well, that oh, sounds that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I wanted to say congratulations on Barkskins. What an enormous achievement. So well done on, on all of your parts. Very impressive work. Before we talk about the show, I did want to ask each of you to share what you consider your breakthrough job in entertainment. Each of you comes to this project with wildly different resumes. And I would love to know what was the job or opportunity that helped you not have to have a day job any longer. So maybe I'll start with Elwood. Uh, that's interesting. Um, as Marsha has stated, I'm a very large individual. Uh, I spent a long time working construction and bouncing and doing all kinds of menial labor jobs. But uh, in an odd way, the break was a series of breaks. I'm sure they were aware for everybody, but it was that reminder that I was a guy that was going to be pounding nails until I was 30 or 40, unless I figured something out. So um, for me, it was someone buying one of my books. I'm also a novelist uh, to adapt into a screenplay. And I idiotically asked them, well, what does a screenplay writer make? And they told me this sum at the time. And that sum was more than I would have made writing two or three books. Right. And so I very quickly lied and said <laughs> I had written a screenplay, which I had never written a screenplay before, <laughs> and then punched one out in two weeks, sent it off to Mike DeLuca, who to this day, endlessly, I have, you know, I owe him a lot of my career. He, uh, he said, yeah, you can write screenplays. And then he paid me to adapt my own novel, which was a whole other story, not something I would never do again. Wow. Um, but that was my break. Great. So your entire career is based on a lie, essentially. Of course. Well, most careers are, <laughs> yes. Uh, 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 the script is based, all these scripts are based on lies, sure. <laughs> but it's how well written they are that matters. So, <laughs> exactly. so keep that in mind. <laughs> exactly. That's a great story. And how about yeah. you, Marsha? Um, I have a really classic sort of trajectory in, in terms of being an actor. I knew I wanted to be an actor, and I'm the girl who literally got off the bus at, at Port Authority in character shoes and an A-line skirt and a leotard top, you know, <laughs> ready to go to my first audition, which is crazy because you get off the bus and you and you 
that, you know, I had my school and whatnot. And you're like, wait, wait, where's Scorsese? Don't they know I'm here? You, know, like, <laughs> like you just have this, you have this sense that it's going to be a week for you, even though it was mm. 10 years for everybody else. Right. And uh, I ended up waiting a thousand tables and going back to grad school. And at the end of uh, grad school or going to grad school at NYU, at the end of grad school, the Coen brothers invited me to audition for Miller's mm. Crossing. And I was doing a play out in you know, Virginia and I, would take the train up to do the play. And I just remember like at the time that they gave you, which they don't do anymore, they gave you the script and they gave you op an opportunity to research it. So yeah. I was looking at Dashio Hammett and Thin Line and just all these characters and um, what was her name, Jean Harlow, Public Enemy, all that. I was mm -hmm. looking, so I was ready to go in and I was prepared. And after about two months of auditioning, I got that role. Wow. And to your question, I actually did go back to catering and I did go back to waiting tables after that, you know, because you never really make any money on your first movie, but it was a Coen Brothers movie and I was getting to play this character um, who kind of transformed. And so I feel like that, that at least, I won't say it put me on the map, but it got my name in rooms. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, for me, it was just such a huge opportunity to work with these guys and be in this like, they're, they're just like cult, you know, classic people of course so and this that, was not long after blood simple and they were just sort of becoming the guys yeah. everyone wanted to work with yeah we, they had blood simple and raising arizona right and so this was their third one and right. albert finney the late great albert finney was in amazing it. but i will say that when i met albert finney because i didn't really i didn't know him um but my dad had been like that god Dang, Albert Finney, he's wonderful. Albert Finney, he, my dad's like a military officer. Oh, that Tom Jones, the oyster scene, gorgeous. And so when I met him, we were going up in the elevator and I said, excuse me, Mr. Finney. And he said, yes, darling. I said, well, you know that movie Tom Jones you did? And he said, yes, darling. And I said, well, was that about Tom Jones, the singer? And he said, oh my God, have you never read a book in your life? And we became, we became great friends after that. And it was just... Um, um, the whole experience was fantastic. Wow, what a great, that's an audacious debut for sure. And I also like that you were put in your place slightly by Albert Finney, which Time is and time again. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and David, do you have a similar trajectory or how far flung from that? Are you? I, 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 I don't have a similar trajectory in terms of how impressive my first job was. Um, with the Coen Brothers, I, I, I'd spent three years at um, drama school, at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which is a very Shakespearean training uh, right next door to the Royal Shakespeare Company in the Barbican Centre in London. And I was the first one to get an agent, and my first audition was for a Kellogg's Brandflix <laughs> commercial, <laughs> which, which, which was going to rise in Britain. It had the slogan of their tasty, tasty, very, very tasty, and, and it was a very famous commercial. And I rang my agent and I was like, I don't want to go for an audition for a commercial. I've just done three years training, Shakespearean training. I don't want to do a damn, damn commercial. And she said, well, just go for it. It'll be good experience for you. And I went and there was a room full of about 30 people and I did what I had to do. I was playing a weekend because <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was even thinner then than I am now. And I was in a string vest and I had to put a little knotted handkerchief on my head and play basically a guy who was the butt of the commercial in the, he's a, you know, he's an idiot. <laughs> And, uh, and to my horror, I got it. Um, and she says, this is incredible. People don't usually get commercials and you've got your very first audition and you've got your very first one. 
And I said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do that. Tasty, tasty, very tasty. I've got to walk the streets and I've, you know, I've got a credibility to keep up. And then she says, but they're going to shoot it in Florida and pay you 12,000 pounds. And I was like, well, how does it go? Tasty, tasty. <laughs> tasty, tasty. And I'd never been to America. And it was my dream to go to America. I was, I was 21 years old and I'd never been. And... I then got on the plane and I flew with the gentleman who shot this commercial. And the man who shot this commercial, the cinematographer, was Freddie Young. Mm. This is the man who shot Lawrence of Arabia and Ryan's daughter, was David Lean's favorite wow. um, cinematographer, and had a history going right back to the beginning of film and was on the plane. They sat me next to him on the airplane, so the oldest man and the youngest guy on the airplane. And he was telling me stories going, I remember when I was there and I said to Stan, I said, tell Ollie to come over here. And I was like, what? He says, I said to Stan, I said, Stan and Ollie? He said, that's Long Hardy. And he's like, you knew Long and Hardy? He's like, well, I, yes, my dear, I shot them, of course, like that. And I said to Carrie, and I said, Carrie Grant? It's like, <laughs> So this turned out to be a dream, dream, dream job. Wow. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm sure if you go on YouTube, you can actually check out this, uh, the validity of the story. And you'll see me there in a string vest <laughs> with a, a knotted handkerchief on my head. But at least I was shot by one of the oh, greats. Oh, my goodness. So, Elwood, what was it about Annie Prue's novel, which I think we can all say is extremely dense, extremely long, and there wouldn't really be enough time to tell every element of this story. But what was it about this particular story that made you want to adapt it? Well, I mean, setting aside the Annie Prue as a novelist, Annie Prue as a writer, that meant a lot to me. Um, I, I got to be honest, the thing that made me attracted to it was the simple unadaptability of the book. <laughs> really? um, because, you know, you get offered so many things in this business, you know, and you're lucky to be offered them, but like things that you can do in your sleep, you, I've learned as I've gotten older to sort of like be a little more wary of. This was a huge book by an author I admired. It like you said, it, it covers 300 years of North American history. Uh, that does not scream a TV show. Uh, and then, you know, this particularly the section I picked, which was, you know, 1670s, new France along the St. Lawrence seaway, you know, uh, there was no show like that out there. So all these things both scared me and excited me. And I think that when I get that feeling like uh, the best answer I can always give someone is, I don't know. When I, when I say I don't know, therefore the next thing is, is well, I'm going to go find out. And and for me, the writing process is the finding out of that. And so there's this real fresh, fun discovery thing. And I think you can see it in some of the characters. Like I, you know, it felt like in, even as we were shooting, we were discovering the world that we were creating up there. And I think that was, um, something that always draws you to a book, something that can contain wherever your imagination wants to go. Um, and this book certainly had that and it was big and it just, and I, the minute I said, okay, I'm going to do the first hundred pages. I felt free of the burden of those 600. Mm. And then it, I was allowed to sort of like, you know, elbow enough my room for myself to create a, a TV show or, or attempt to create a compelling TV show. Hmm. And how does your experience as a novelist yourself help you in this process? But also does it create any hindrances because you also understand novel writing is it hard to be able to do both and turn off one switch and turn on the other? Uh, you might as you might as well ask David this question too, because he's also a novelist. But uh, it, it oh, yes. I, I, I don't know if novel writing really applies to anything. Um, hmm. it, it it having had my novels adapted by other people and adapting my own and adapting other people's, 
Um, uh, to me, books are my primary intake. They're the perfect art form. When, when you fall, I mean, we all know this, I would hope, uh, generations do now when you fall into a book, it's almost virtual reality. Um, the language, the setting, the characters. So, you know, as a novelist, you're always trying to achieve that in TV to me, in many ways, even though there's a lot more behind the camera, it seems a much more flatter experience. So hmm. I, I'm, you know, I'm always very wary of adaptation and I think the best adaptations take an essence from a book. They take the tone. They take the, 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 there's like a, a summoning that all novelists do in the beginning of a book. And so I, I paid real, a lot of attention to Annie Proust's first hundred pages because I know when I'm writing a book, I have many, many books that have crapped out at the hundred and 150 page spot because that summoning in the beginning, that foundation that you built it on didn't have enough legs to go forward. I could feel in her book from the opening pages, this was going to be a big book. And I'm sure she knew that when she was writing it. That's why it's 700 pages. You, I mean, you can just feel it. Um, hmm. I don't know. I, I think so many people adapt. And I've approached many different adaptations differently. Like some, you just throw everything away and keep the title. I've done that before. Hmm. You know, right. sometimes you keep like the one line elevator pitch and you throw the rest of the book away. Other times you pick one character. So this book had an amazing setting, an amazing set of characters. And I, and I felt this sort of like weight she was, she's telling this massive story of the march of civilization and the rape of the land and the, you know, and, and the sort of, you know, the sort of the way empires are built on the have and have nots. So I knew all those themes were in the book, having read the book. So then I try to go back and squeeze those into that, into a tight eight episode show. Um, that, that was the challenge in the show. I mean, we could have, you know, the show was originally slated for 10 episodes, but because of the weather where we were shooting, I had to cut the episodes back to eight. Oh, wow. I had intended 10 episodes of story. I had a lot of story to get to. And so I had to accelerate some of these storylines for some of these characters much faster than I had anticipated. Um, you wow. know, but, th but that's normal. That's the writing process. So you had to adapt your adaptation essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I mean, I had all, I mean, I had all these grand ideas and like when you go up there physically, David and Marsha can speak to this, the, the landscape was so imposing and, and it just, it put both endless possibilities before us and, and a lot of limitations. There were just things I couldn't, could not do up there right. um, uh, because of we, where we were, but there was also anywhere you point to the camera, it was like someone had designed this in a computer graphics lab. It, it, it looked, it looks fake. My worry when we did hmm. the show was it was going to look fake and because it, it's so real and everyone keeps going, where did you shoot that? Where, I said, we, we shot it practical. There's no, there's right. no CGI, no green screen work done in there. It's all visual. What you see is what you get. Hmm. That's great. And you can tell, by the way. Yeah, well, <laughs> feels, I mean, I, I, like I think people are so, you know, attuned to like, you know, seeing CGI forests and, you know, winter landscapes that they just think it, it's too good to be true. And in this sense, the location, Quebec, where we filmed was, was a character. And, 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 and I didn't know that until I got up there. And I, I can, I can, I damn well bet you that Marsh and David didn't understand what that meant <laughs> until they got off the plane up there and got up on a mountaintop with bugs and, and endless trees. It's huge. Definitely better than shooting in Santa Clarita where a lot of, uh... <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. <laughs> I know. I've done that. Everyone's had to shoot there yep. at some point, but I think yep. for this piece with it, with the setting being so distinct, I think, uh, all your, your struggle was very much worth it. So David and Marsha, how much did each of you know about this chapter in world history? For me, it was very new. Well, true to my American education, I didn't know much at all, I have to say, <laughs> unfortunately. But I was reading the book on my own anyway, because I love her writing. And so mm -hmm. when, when the project came about, <clears throat> it was easy for me to 
throw myself at the feet of Elwood and say, please, don't you think I should be in it too? Um, <laughs> and, and, and become a part of the history. I think what's so interesting when I look at the history, like I had no idea about the Fidua, the uh, daughters of the king, these women who were sent over basically crassly to pump out babies for some guy that they choose mm-hmm. to live deep in the woods. And I was listening to some other people's interviews and they talk about this as kind of the beginning of capitalism and the um, mm. and and the beginning of really do you conquer the land or live in harmony with the land and I think all of those ideas are in this story and there are the, all these through lines without being didactic about them in the way that Elwood's written it but the, those the, there are all these through lines and yet we're doing this little part of this French history and what's mm-hmm. the other part that's so fascinating is where did all these people come from and who were they in France and we don't really We'll find those backstories, but this was kind of a motley crew of people who came over. I'm thinking about, again, the Fidoua. What mother would allow her kid to get on a boat <laughs> and go over to this yeah. hostile, seemingly hostile territory, trees and guys? And like, who would these people be? And so you quickly extrapolate yeah. and you say, okay, they're not the cream of the crop. These aren't. These are these are people who are escaping something. They're coming from somewhere. They're right. they're either in poverty or they have tawdry backgrounds or difficult right. or violent or whatever. They're immigrants looking for something new and right. looking for something better. And to tell it through this little French perspective of this little erected town in the middle of the forest, I just think it's mind-bogglingly unique, and it opens mm-hmm. up. Uh, so much opportunity for drama and storytelling. Hmm. And tell me about your character. What's her story? Um, I think she came from the north of France. I think she was in an unhappy marriage. And I think she's been here in this community like almost from the beginning. Her name is Mathilde Gaffard, and she runs an inn, and she finds her freedom. I don't really think it's a spoiler alert to say that her um, husband dies because he dies really quickly in the storyline. But she finds her, like, once he's dead, it's like, all right, it's my time now. And she's, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect this from the writing because when Elwood and I were talking about the character, I actually thought he wouldn't cast me because I'm older and can't, I'm not a hmm. childbearing. Was she written to be younger? She's not in the book. He, she was written in his mind. And, and my, oh. my understanding from all the casting people is that she was supposed to be younger because a woman's, um, uh, advantage is if she can have a baby, right? You're that much more valuable to the community if you can have a baby. So right. when Elwood cast me, he started exploring what is an older woman's value in a community. She's a voice of um, a working woman. And so she's an mm. early voice of that to these girls. She's literally saying, come work for me. Why, why would you want to be off in a forest pumping out babies for this guy? It's not so bad here. Women must work. And, and she's thinking about expanding. So she's this kind of wonderful entrepreneur. And none of that I expected. I didn't know who she was. Mm. All I knew is I wanted to be in it. I wanted to work with Elwood, Scott Rudin, and Nat Geo, and David Thewlis. That was pretty much (laughs) what I knew. Well, that offers a perfect segue to to talk to David. And I assume as a Brit, you had a better education than the rest of us. And did you know a lot about this part of uh, world history? Um, well, that's true. As a Brit, I did have a better education than the rest of you. <laughs> um, did I know about this part of history? No, I didn't. That was missing from my education because we're mainly only educated about ourselves. I was very familiar with this uh, with this century in, in European history, of course, because it's the century of Elizabeth and Shakespeare and the Restoration and, and, and so many um, 
the most famous part of our history, really, on our favorite part of history, because it's so rich. Um, but I didn't know anything like Marcia. I mean, it's fascinating to hear that uh, Americans aren't that familiar with with, with this uh, this part of history. I was terribly, terribly ignorant about the whole thing. So for me, doing the job was, as much as anything, uh, a wonderful education hmm. um, because it, it educated me about this part of history. It also educated me in, in the, the story of the Cathars, which is uh, Trepanier, my character. Uh, Trepanier, uh, this, this is his, um, his religion. Um, he is considered as a heretic in, in the uh, community. He's very much an outsider, literally, um, he lives outside the settlement, and he's 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 mistrusted because he he's not he's not a Catholic and he's he's, he's not even a, 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 a member of, of 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 the normal community. He's a man who lives out in the woods with a a, a woman, a native woman, her, who with whom he has a child, but he has aspirations to marry a French woman, one of these Fidoras, which is his dream. This is his absolute ideal <laughs> to 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 have one of these. Um, the women as his wife and to raise a family. Family is everything to him to, to in, inherit his, his fortune and his land. Um, and, you know, the, the, the fun with the character is I think we, we see him trying to uh, attain these dreams in a very, very slapdash, scoundrelish, um, haphazard manner in, in, in that he does find a, find a woman to marry, but he keeps... His his the mother of his child, and he somehow thinks that he can reconcile these two uh, opposing circumstances, and and that for me was just I just thought that was such great fun, yes. um, you know. I I always tend to look for things that uh, will will you know give me some fun and hopefully the audience some fun. And whenever I go towards something a little more uh, mundane, I get very bored. So this was a bit of a dream for me. You definitely do not seem bored playing this character. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not at all. We could, it, was impo- it was impossible to be bored. It was, just, it was, it was highly entertaining to me, at least. <laughs> and Elwood, you talked about your approach to adapting this enormous story in the sense that it became more contained than maybe a traditional adaptation, which may sprawl you know, numerous mm-hmm. decades and possibly even centuries. Did you have access at all to Annie during this process? And did she give her blessing sort of as to your approach? Because it would be hard to not want to ask for her <laughs> opinion along the way and, and kind of gauge, does she think that this this approach is working? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, the answer to the first question is yes, I had access to Annie. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you when you read a writer, what's interesting is you have this idea of who you think they are and like... Uh, you know, I always imagined uh, Annie to be sort of this ornery, gruff uh, person, and she kind of is that in, in a very charming she way. Is, yeah, <laughs> and, and she's also sort of like a weird, like um, polymath is the wrong word, but like we talked. She didn't want to talk about her book, and I, I understand that when someone calls me to talk about particularly books, I'll talk about everybody else's book except my own because I, I, I feel like books are these things you get off your chest and then you don't want to talk about them. Um, she, it was funny. I, funny story, true story. She, I I was asking her, I had a lot of characters, uh, questions about Trepignier, David's character. Cause he was this, you know, he's, he's in the first hundred pages and he kind of like, he's like this comet that shoots through the book. And, um, and, and he's very like, you're drawn to in the minute you read the book. Um, and I was like, what makes him tick? And so her first response to me, I was like, can I see your research? Because I know I, there had to have been a lot of research from this book. She sent me in a manila envelope, and you know, Annie Prue, 
a Rand McNally map of Canada. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I, I know where Canada is. And so, you know, her and I continued. And, and I got to be honest with you, our conversations, I had these long emails. She would talk about wood thrush and she's very into that. We talk about the woods. And I talked about hunting and she was asking about, you know, the, uh, I'd killed an animal recently. She was talking about that. And then some animals she'd found dead in the woods. So it was this strange kind of things I like to talk about. So we ended up not talking about the book. The one key that she did give that David had talked about with the character was, uh, you know, I pestered her and pestered her. And she finally said, well, um, cause I, I couldn't understand his relationship to the church. Like why were people recoiling from this guy? If he was part of this, you know, Catholic church. And she's like, well, mm-hmm. I'd always intended him to be a Cathar. Um, but I had to edit, imagine this 150 pages out of the book. And she, she called it the great slaughter. And she's like, that section about his Catharism was one of the things that was taken out of the book. Now, I, my antenna went right up. I was like, oh my God, this is secret knowledge no one else knows. But it, it did explain the DNA of the character, why he felt so separate as David was talking about. Like he feels like the sorcerer that has this power when he walks into mm-hmm. a room. Um, so um, uh, that I then it set me off into research. And as far as her blessing goes, I, she has the same attitude that I do, which is like, you know, the blessing is the money that someone paid to adapt her book. Um, and then, and then you get, cause she wrote the book. It's perfect. It's, it's, right. it's it lives out there. Right. People love it. Um, someone paid her extra money for no more work. Um, she's not going to probably do any more work. She's like, okay, great. And, and, and she's let me go off and adapt the book. Um, I know I've dealt with authors that want to come visit you that want to come mm. move next door to you and like get into your life. And you're like, uh, no, no, no. I wrote the book. You adapt it. You do what you want. I already said what I had to say in the book. It's it's a completely different medium, in my in my opinion. Uh, you know, books and television. We, we we continue to have these emails and conversations about the natural world and about you know strange stuff like that. And that's that's who I want Annie to be, and that's who Annie is to me, um, uh, which is amazing. So I'd love to play a clip from episode one that features Marsha's character Mathilde in one of her numerous moments where she has to hold her own against the men of Wobick. You should teach this boy some manners, pointing a knife at a lady. Is that true? Huh? Out. Out. Everyone, out, 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 out. There is a man at the inn. He is asking after Mr. Cross. His name is Mr. Hamish Gomes. What manner is he asking? He's from the Hudson's Bay Company. Mr. Cook has already met him. What else? And I have kept my ears open as you have asked. I don't know what you and Mr. Cook are up to, nor do I care, but I will have my payment now. We have no money. It's all on the table with a pair of queens. Get a marker. So, Marsha, you've hinted at this a little bit, uh, sort of the the plight of the woman in this mm. community. Uh, specifically your character, but also just what women had to endure essentially being shipped over to procreate in this uh, in this little town. What else shocked and surprised you about the way people lived back then in terms of the way they cooked, in terms of their sanitation, in terms of the clothing? I mean, this is rough living, but at the same time, they have a civility to the way they live and they take pride in, in food and agriculture. And it is a fairly impressive way of life for such a grueling environment. True. And to be clear, the women chose to come on that boat. They were given a little dowry and they were promised some fancy things from the king and they chose. That is not Mathilde. That that wasn't her journey. She wasn't one of those girls for anyone listening who who, um, might not have seen the show yet. Um, 
you know, I don't, I actually don't think I was shocked by how they live because I know about this, about this world. I mean, anybody's ever, ever visited um, Williamsburg or something like that, you know, you know, this world. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought the questions of agency of wanting a child or not wanting a child were interesting. Mm-hmm. And I had never really put my mind around how those issues would have been dealt with because of the deep religious beliefs and, um, and, and the value of having children, but what hardship that was for the women. The, you you come to understand such a lack of protection for the women. Mm. So the rules of a town and the rules of civilization are really important. David Wilmont's character is supposed to be the one kind of making those civil rules happen, and he's a drunk, you know, which is like, can we draw 9,000 parallels to today? So it's just the need to have some kind of uh, constant understanding that we need each other in a community and that community has to be strong together. Those things become more um, precious when you're living in that small community like Wobick, um, which by the mm. way was all, it was built from scratch. So if anyone's watching, there's like these gorgeous overhead shots where you come into this little town completely surrounded by ominous trees encroaching upon the land of th- that we've carved out for herself. And that was all built by scratch by this amazing, uh, Isabel Guy is her name, and, and she mm-hmm. built a working village. So what was fun in shooting it is you could say, you know, this scene, is it? it's a beautiful day outside. Is there any way we could take this scene outside and have the same dialogue, but picking, you know, an eggplant or something? And they're like, well, yes, because there are eggplants out there and, and there are chickens <laughs> out there and there are cows out there. You can slaughter a cow if you want. Right. And you're like, no, 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 we're not going to go that far. <laughs> we'll just go pick the eggplant or whatever. Um, but it was a beautiful little working, working village. Actually, we spoke to Isabel and she she spoke at length about the incredible labor involved in literally building this town. And Elwood, I, I think it would be safe to say this is your largest scale production that you've overseen, I'm imagining, uh, <laughs> yeah. in terms of <laughs> in oh, terms yeah. of labor, but also just oh, yeah. the sheer breadth of the geography that you're taking up. What part of that process most overwhelmed you, but also excited you? Or were those two the same thing for you in terms of just imagining the scale of what this required? Well, you know, that's the thing, like, and, and I've, Isabel was a great partner, and there was a my my wardrobe person Anna Tarasas was also. We very spoke to her to as me. well. Yeah, they were. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't say. It, and again, I, I'd like to take credit. The only credit I can take is 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 both. I'm a, I've I've been in a relationship with Anna for a long time. She did the bridge for me, mm-hmm. um, and I found her this amazing creative partner. Um, and Isabel was somebody when when I interviewed her, I, I knew I had this thing looming, which is if I didn't figure out or get the right production designer, we would be in a back lot somewhere. We'd be, you know, the studio a couple times. Like, we can do a lot of this with computer graphics, and you can extend the set. You can do three wall sets. Isabel was this person that came in, and she was undaunted by the process. And she's, if you've ever met Isabel, she's very chic looking, and but she's the toughest sort of like, uh, you know, tenacious. She's even tougher and more stubborn than I am. <laughs> um, and and I was really attracted to that. And both Anna and, and Isabel were because what what they were facing was a thing that. I, my my job was just to hire them and then unleash them to sort of physically build. All the wardrobe was hand-built, everything, including the shoes, the socks. Mm-hmm. Everything was hand-built. Um, uh, the, the the sets, Isabel said right away, I want you to be able to take a camera and, and, and as um, Marsh was saying, shoot anywhere you want. Um, and she was going to build it by hand. 
Um, and, and I think that lends us authenticity. So, I mean, I was intimidated by it, but I think the earliest battle I fought was, and, and again, I, I don't think it was the easiest thing for the studio. I moved to show up to Quebec. They'd never ha- hosted a production this big, hmm. but that worked to my benefit because, because there was nothing there. It had to be built. And that's where Isabel comes in. Isabel's like, we're not going on a stage. We're not going to rent a hockey arena. She's like, they don't know how to do movies up here. You know, uh, they don't have stages. I'm going to build everything for us. So we were basically living in Isabel's world. The entire movie was hosted by Isabel and all these sets she built. There wasn't one piece of stage work, not even like a little interior thing that you see on camera. That was all done in her real sets outside in the woods that she built. So so it was really easy. And and, and again, they, they made it. You know, it was just, it was fighting for the location, first of all, to shoot the story where the story took place. That felt important to me. And then to hire someone, Isabel, this was telling her story. She's French Canadian. This was not something, this was not a sci-fi show for her. This was something that she could relate to. And it was very, very important to her. And I think that we were there, we had to honor those sets. And when you walked Mm -hmm. on, you felt like, oh, okay, this is real. And I, and I, and I told Marsha this and David this, and, and, and I don't usually mince words when it comes to this is like, I... I, I want to do something great. Uh, and uh, I, I want to be around people who want to do something great. Um, and I think that, you know, when you, when you set that bar, it attracts people who are not going to settle. And so, mm. you know, a lot of the conversations I had, even with the actors and with the, with the set design, with the wardrobe, everything was always with the understanding that we weren't going to settle. We were going to do something great. Um, mm. And when, when you do that, when you set that, you know, that, that sort of those parameters for the show, everybody, I found rises to that, but when you're, when the head person, meaning me is lazy or taking shortcuts or yeah, sure. We'll do it on computer green screen. We'll fix it in post that bleeds <laughs> through to the performance. You know, I, I truly believe that I've seen it. The actor's like, Oh, we'll fix it later. We'll get it. There's, there was no fixing there. We didn't do one day of, re- we didn't do any reshoots on this show. Not one day. It's the first show I've That's ever incredible. done without re- no, no reshoots. <laughs> so, and you're always reshooting stuff, but again, it's because everybody came there, you know, David, for example, he had one of these scenes in the second episode where he's got, I think it's like a five page monologue scene. That's just this rambling, crazy, it's all connected. Um, you know, he came prepared to set and he, I think he, David can contest this. We did that. We shot that scene for seven straight hours. He lost his voice by the end of it, but, but I knew he was committed to the character and to the show. So I could ask that of him, you know, I've been on shows where you ask someone to give a page of dialogue and they're complaining about having to memorize that many lines. Um, right. the people that I hired and it's goes the way Marsha was brought into the show. She called me up begging to do the show. And this is Marsha Gayhart, someone who I've admired from afar from a very long time. That meant something to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that means the material, the book, whatever it is, she she wanted to give her all to that. Her her quote was, "I want to get down and dirty. I want to get down and dirty." And she was <laughs> selling herself. Um, and and that matters because I, when I when I go to play, I want to play with people who are who are there and they're and they're laying it down there and they mean it. That's that's what you want. And I hope that comes through on the camera. I hope it, it definitely does. does. And the main the audience may not know why. But that, that yeah. authenticity is, as in, in speaking with Anna and Isabel, it, it just bleeds onto the screen. It's, yeah. I know for a fact that you were not shooting in some yeah. <laughs> sort of fake environment. It felt incredibly real, so well done. So David, I would love for us to get to know your character a little bit better. So let's listen to a clip from, also from episode one. 
during one of Trepanyi's many dramatic entrances. He really knows how to walk into a space, doesn't he? Behold, I am arrived in glory. Ah. Yes. What sort of a man are you? Rene Sel. No, 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 no. Your name matters no more than the mouth of a fish. I will ask you once again. What sort of a man are you? I am your man. Yes. Come. Come. So, David, tell me about getting into character in terms of wardrobe. This is a man who knows how to dress. He likes to show off his sartorial skills. <laughs> he sort of yes. has like a David Bowie, Three Musketeer thing going on. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about uh, his his style. Well, that, that's that's interesting. Yeah, uh, you say David Bowie. Um, in, in, when, I, when I read the book... And when I first met Elwood, I, I didn't see myself as this character. And because this character is, is, is a little different in the book, he's, he's he described as a hugely powerful, muscular, big guy who's actually chopping down the trees himself. Hmm. And I, I didn't feel that that's me. I'm not the most muscular guy in the world and I had a very bad shoulder. And I said, I can't be chopping down trees. And, and Elwood was like, listen, I, and the reference he gave me, I remember, was Nick Cave. This is hmm. our very first meeting. As, as we shared a I can glass see of wine that. in okay. New York. <laughs> And but I, that's what really got my attention. I was like, oh, that's extraordinary. That's because I was all ready to go to the meeting guy, and I'm really glad to meet you. But I've got to tell you, I'm not that guy. And then when he said that, that of course got my uh, attention. Then 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 I I met Anna, the costume man. She had mood boards up uh, with Jimi Hendrix on there, and might as well have indeed have had uh, David Bowie. And then these. Costumes appeared and were beautifully tailored and fitted. And I, I saw a whole different character emerge before I'd really got to um, know what I was going to do with the character. And that is often the case. It was more the case with this because I had no idea how this man was going to look. I could, I could reference other movies set um, at, at this period and look at lots of research paintings, obviously. But I thought, but this man is, 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 is very different. Um, and I didn't really understand who I was going to be until I saw those costumes. And that's then what gave me the, the, the scale of the character and, and that wonderful cane that I have with a little, what's actually, I think it's a, a lamb's skull uh, on the tip of it, uh, on the head of it, which, which is also, thank God for that cane, because that got me up and down the hills. I wouldn't have been able to do the show without that cane, which is now <laughs> sitting, sitting in my office here. Uh, I sometimes go for a walk nearby with the cane, by the way, Elwood. And uh, it's <laughs> good, scared, good, good. Scare the life out of uh, the local people. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, more than more more than other times, it's always, always, always uh, how you're dressed is a big key to the character. But more times than most, the, the, with with Trepanier, it was everything. Um, and um, you know, it's, it's it was it was hard to be subdued. 
in the in this costume. I mean, every, everyone was so beautifully dressed. It wasn't that. It's just these yeah. are rather colourful and everything's just a little... And it, it also makes him an enigma because... Mm-hmm. You wonder why he's dressed like this, and what is his history? Because he's he, like, is he delusional? Is he is he is he is he just talking crap with these people? Because he boasts that he's an enormous wealthy man, and he lives on this dome or on this grand grand um, estate, and yet he takes his two indentured servants and shows them his doma, and it's a little mud hut right, in the middle right. of a raised you know forest where everything's being cut down, and he's living. Very, very, very primitively, hmm. and so straight away you're drawn to him because you think, well, this he's, he's he's lying then. But why? How on earth could he be dressed like this, but living in these conditions? And then slowly you see, actually, there's another side to him. In fact, he's also living in a very ostentatious grand French chateau in the middle of the woods. Um, you know, and and so I th- I think the costume is the key to him in terms of, as he says himself, he's he's I think he's. Brain burns with contradiction. I can't remember the line now. He's a, he's, a, he's a man who is purely a contradiction, and the 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 costume says that straight away. Mm-hmm. He said he does seem to have self awareness too, which I appreciate. <laughs> well, I don't see how you could yeah you, you be him and, and not be not be self aware. But he's, you know it's it's very it's very fun. I haven't often played people who are vain. Hmm. Um, and and that's uh, maybe all actors are vain. Maybe maybe I should play more characters <laughs> vain. Can I add one thing? It's so interesting to hear David talk about his perception of the character because from where I stood, I had the opposite standpoint. I remember, I remember we met in New York. I flew to New York to meet him briefly uh, for, and it was, it was being told as one glass of wine. Uh, I I just flew to New York to, 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 you know, to, to, to buy an expensive glass of wine for an actor to tell me he doesn't want to do it. But, you know, again, just like Marsha, David Thewlis is this actor that I've admired from, I mean, going, I mean, I know everyone talks, it's easy to talk about naked, um, but it's just, it was a seminal movie to me in his performance because it was the first time I saw sort of this jaundiced, silver tongue, smart, negative, self aggrandizing, self loathing character on camera. I've never seen a character like that on camera. Um, hmm. And David had a lot to do with that. Um, that was a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for David, but it, that was him just sort of, you know, ad libbing and extemporizing uh, that dialogue. Um, so when I sat down with them, my, I, this, I was already, my heart was set on Trepani. And when I'm going through this meeting for our one glass, I ordered a bottle of wine, thankfully, not a glass of wine. <laughs> what that kind of wine be, was it? What kind it, of wine it was, did it, you it, 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 it was an Italian one. It was a Brunello. And I knew okay. that he would, he was British. So he'd at least be polite enough to stay until we finished the bottle of wine. An American would have drank the glass of wine and left. <laughs> so, um, I, and I was sitting there the whole time in the meeting going, okay, well, if we can't get David, who's the poor man's David Thewlis? Um, and, and, and when you, when you start to do that, you're screwed because like, I think it was funny, David approached the physical aspect. I think when you read the book that comes across, but on the page and the scripts that I'd written, he was this silver tongued devil in many ways. And I, and I knew David could just do this stuff in his sleep, uh, and deliver these lines. And so I was incredibly nervous the whole time when I was meeting him going, well, if David doesn't do this, uh, everyone's going to fall short of this trepanier. Because when he sat down, I just heard David talk. I was like, "That's the character," and and I had mm-hmm. seen him, you know. Consequently, when he got on set, the first one of the first couple of days, um, just the way that David walked in the uh, in the uh, on the set in the woods with the cane and the slinky, he did walk a little bit like uh, you know, if you have ever seen Nick Cave perform, I mean, Nick Cave kind of slinks across the stage, mm-hmm. and David had that, and then but he also had this. Um, Klaus Kinski is one of my favorite actors. He had this sort of mad, like looking at the camera and looking up at the sunlight physicality that I had not scripted. Um, and I was like, oh my God. It's, you know, very rarely 
when you write a character, you go after an actor, and then you see them on the first day in set, there's always like, ah, wish they could do better. Uh, I was like, I was thrilled. I was like holding my breath the whole time. And it's the same thing with Marsha. I just, you know, so I've said this a lot. I, I, my job as a writer was to hold my breath and, mm. and to not screw these people up. And so I would tell a lot of the directors that come in, I was like, you guys, you, these, these are sports cars. You don't crash the sports car. Just take it for a drive around the block and you'll be fine. <laughs> um, because they knew what they knew, what the, the actors knew they'd inhabited the roles. And again, I think that goes to hiring actors of this caliber. They do so much work beforehand. All that stuff that Marsha was talking about, the, about her, her backstory, that wasn't on the page. She, right. she came to me with this idea and I was like, that's engagement. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what, that's why working with actors like this is such a thrill, you know, for, for a writer like myself. Well, hiring well makes your job much easier down the road. And I do think it's a lot like drafting a, a sports team. When you have Marsha and David as your as your number one and number two on the call sheet, like the other actors, they come loaded for bear. They, they mm. I can't tell you how many actors pulled me aside and go, is Marsha Gehardt going to be in a scene with her? That's David Thewlis. Have you seen? I was like, yes, of course I've seen Naked. Of course I've seen Pollock. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and they, were, they were intimidated and they were nervous. And again, that goes back to that the reason I took the job. I was nervous. I was scared. That's and a good think, feeling, yeah. though. You can use it. Is. It is. Yeah. yeah, and the actors are on their toes. And, and they both of them are very giving actors. They were the sort of like the big adults in the room that were going, if we're going to rehearse this scene, we're going to get it standing up. And um, it was just, for me, it was, I just sat back and watched. Marsha, tell me a little bit about battling the elements, which I know weather and wildlife and trees and everything made all this incredibly real and realistic and authentic and also made things probably difficult. So tell me a little bit about what it was like acting in that environment amidst, uh, you know, the wilds of, of Canada. You know, the <laughs> answer to that is, or the interesting answer is going to be far more David's than mine, because I was told that I was living in the lap of luxury uh, by the time <laughs> I got there. The mosquitoes were, for the most part, gone, and oh, I was only in the set of Wobick. So in that set, it was all built. We had trailers that were maybe about a four-minute walk from the set, and uh, you did walk through the mud, and at the time, I was smoking, which I'm not now, but for some reason, I had the idea maybe Matilde smoked <laughs> a pipe, and I don't know why. I remember you I telling me that. that. <laughs> I kind of like that uh, image that it, but that that didn't that didn't go. That was a little maybe too Tennessee somehow. Um, but <laughs> I truly think that the battle of the bugs was held by David, and he should take that answer. <laughs> the battle of the bugs. Yeah. I like that. The true highlight of every day for me was taking my stockings off at the end of the day. That that was when I knew I'd finish for the day. For the most part, it was very hot. Uh, I remember certainly at the beginning, I was there from day one and we shot up, I think for the first week, was it Elwood? We shot up in a in a very, very remote area oh, that yeah. we didn't go back to where we base camp couldn't even communicate with the set. There were no, there was no walkie talkie coverage. There was, we had to drive an hour to work and then drive another hour up the mountain away from the base camp in full costume, in full makeup and then get up there. And then it hit me, which I didn't anticipate that I would, that the part for me would be so physical. It didn't look physical on the page, but there was just a lot of climbing. Right. And, and, and yeah, and the, and the, the mosquitoes were unbearable. And I, I'm a, I get bitten a lot. I'm British and I, wherever I go to the south of France, I, it's, it ruins my time there. Aww. And I should have known because it was, 
It was there in the book and it was there in the script and I know we're shooting exactly where the story happened. So I don't know why I thought it wouldn't be really be the case. Maybe you thought and Canadian no, mosquitoes would be nicer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I just oh, I thought they'd have changed in the 21st century. <laughs> Something would be different or they'd, have, they'd understand we're making a film and they'd go. Right. But um, they did, and I and I'd never been so bitten. And they were getting un, under my clothes, and and I discovered they really liked the the glue at the edge of the wig. They seemed to really feed. Oh no! <laughs> on, on on that, and I remember at lunchtime one, one time I had a I had a bug, which was not a not a mosquito, a, a bug. I don't know what it was called. It was like the size of a Shih Tzu dog. It, it was it was it was, it was un, under my wig, oh. and it was under my wig, and I didn't realize because someone said they'd seen something on my shoulder. And we thought we'd dashed it to the ground and we couldn't see where it was. And then later I felt something on my neck, half an hour later, which meant the thing had been <laughs> between my head. Oh my and goodness. I had a shaved head at the time and, 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 the, and the wig all that time. So it's, it was, I, I kind of, I hated that. And I hated the first few days for that, for that, very, uh, that very reason. Did you wear yeah. a bug repellent? Yeah. Did you, could you spray yourself Oh, down? yeah, that did. It doesn't matter. I didn't have any effect at all. What David's leaving out is that every, everybody, including myself, was in full netted mosquito bodysuits, except for the actors. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so wow. they, they were staring across the camera at us. We had face masks on and everything because uh, the mosquitoes were that bad. Wow. Yeah. That, is a, that is a true war that you won. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. I spoke with Isabel and Anna about the native, uh, in, first of all, the huge native influence in, in telling this story, but also the access that they had to local museums. And I was wondering what access did you have personally to native consultants, either while writing and also on set? Did you have people there, historians, regional historians who could say, yes, this, is, this feels real. This is the clothing that they would wear. This is the ceremony that they would perform. How authentically were you able to tell that part of the story? Well, I mean, I knew going in it was Nat Geo because you know the icon, you know the magazine, of you course. have to pay attention to that. But but the people, my creatives at Nat Geo, they never were calling me up going, God, you have to make sure this is all pure because they just understood that we were going to do that work. Um, and that work lent itself to the show. So I have a friend, it's, he's, he and I are, go back way back, we traveled France together as young novelists, uh, David Troyer. He wrote a book called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee yeah, recently. Of course. He's, mm -hmm. he's a novelist. Um, yeah. uh, he's a Jibwe. And I called him, I consulted him and I sent him the script and he gave me some few things. Like, I think I had used a few terms, like that's an offensive term. And he gave me, he's like, you know what you really need to do? You need to hire this writer, Migazi Ponsonneau. Uh, he's an Ojibwe writer. He can't, he started out as a screenwriter and then formed this theater troupe called the 1491s, uh, hmm. uh, which they sort of poke fun at the, at the stereotypes uh, of, of, of first nations people in, in, in film and television and books. Hmm. One of my first nights in Quebec, I met, um, uh, this amazing guy, I, I, I'm very confused by this. He was a chief or was one of the acting chiefs and is still an ex chief or something of the Wendat, the Wendaki, uh, uh, nation up there. And, uh, uh, he was, um, he was, uh, really helpful and very open. And he said, we have this language. It hasn't been spoken in a while. I'd be like, God, it would be awesome if you could use the language. So when we went up there, we, we consulted with all these different varying factions within the tribes. And there's a bunch of different tribes that exist up in that area. And then one of my actors, Dio Horn, she comes from the Mohawk reservation. So she brought with her, they're, they're, they're a member of the Iroquois nation. She brought with her all these friends of hers that built war clubs and actors that were from the Mohawk nation. So there was this idea is I, I, no, everything we, we just, we threw everything we could at trying to 
recreate or not it recreates the wrong word because I think it's always been done wrong in television and movies yeah. is is try to come up with a different language and how to how to depict the First Nations people and how to you know I still remember what Migazi told me the first day he was like he goes uh, we're not going to do chief speak and I said what is mm. chief speak <laughs> and he then imitated the way that Indians speak English on camera very slow and halting and <laughs> somewhat poetic right. Right. Um, and I was like oh boy I've been guilty of that I've written that stuff um, sure. And so he had the more look. He's like, look, they were bilingual. They spoke French. They spoke English. They, they, they were traders. They spoke, you know, other 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 uh, groups' languages. You know, they, they they were trying to survive and thrive too. So once I had that in the room and that you know those voices in the room, it just gave me this feeling of like, okay, we're gonna try to do something new, but we're also gonna honor all the you know the the differing factions that are up there. And 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 again, it's each tribe has its own idea of what happened up there. Um, some tribes sure. were traitors and did well. Others tribes got wiped out. Other tribes were the aggressors and were with the English. And so it's, I knew going in, that was going to be a very difficult sort of thing to navigate. And, 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 and Migazi and, and, and all the researchers that Anna employed and that Isabel employed, I thought did so admirably. And what a sense of relief too, to know that you had that support system you know, in case you did have a question or maybe yeah. did say something that didn't ring true. That's well, I'm sure we got stuff wrong. I guarantee you we got stuff wrong. <laughs> but, but, but it was the understanding. Right. It was, I know we did. And it was the understanding. As I, t I told Migs at Girl and Going On, I was like, I was like, this is television. There's some things we can control and there's some things we can't control. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm like, even with the French, I'm, I'm sure the French have a lot more reason to be offended by some of the accents that we put in there and by the lack of some of the French language. Um, but it was one of those things where going in, you just, you know, you, you, they knew that our heart was in the right place. We really tried to reach out. And I think that's all you can do and have open ears, you know, involve the community. When you see the big Indian village that um, the, the uh, Wendat village that, that Isabel built, um, the majority of people in that, they're all First Nations people. The majority of the people there are from the local Wendat reservation. Um, and that was an edict I laid down. You know, they had to, every, every extra you saw that was dressed up as a First Nations person had to be of that blood. That's very cool. Well, my job is just to hire the right people. I mean, it goes right. back to Anna. Exactly. I mean, I just hire, I hire people who are going to challenge me. And I think as I got older, when I was younger, I didn't want to ever be challenged in anything. And now I always want to be challenged because when you're not being challenged, you're not, you're not asking the right questions. And so hiring people who are smart and are not afraid to push back at you is, is something I look for. And just the last thing I wanted to get everyone's take on, in Elwood specifically, your work in the last few years in television, from The Bridge to The Shy, and now this piece, Barkskins, there's an interesting sort of vagary about who's good and who's bad. It seems like you sort of thrive <laughs> in that gray area of who's the villain, who's the hero, because obviously we, you know, each of us has elements of both of those in ourselves. And this, this program obviously depicts people surviving, people pillaging, but also if people are all just trying to survive, is there good and bad? So, so I want to know what each of you thinks about what is the takeaway from this story? Could you assign that villainous quality to people? Or was everyone just trying to forge their own path and stake their own claim in a new world and actually create a new life for themselves? So maybe Elwood, tell me what you think about that. Well, I mean, thank you for picking up on that. I think, it, it, again, that, that goes to sort of the white hat, black hat laziness that a lot of people like to sort drama in. I don't think real people are that way at all. No one's wholly good and no one's wholly bad. Um, I remember I'm driven by two sort of people that I really admire artistically. Uh, one is David Milch, uh, who was an early writer. He was the first person, in my opinion, to sort of, along with David Chase, to introduce that into the television language, which is like, here's these characters that do these really horrible things. Yet they're also going to do something good, and they're also going to be charming as hell. 
Mm-hmm. I dare you to like them. I dare you to root for them. And, you know, I think <laughs> the genesis of that comes from Elmer Leonard, who's a writer I got to spend some time with. And Elmer Leonard told me, he was like, bad guys love their mothers too. Bad guys have daughters they're trying to put through school. He's like, you know, yeah, sure, they go kill somebody. Um, right. He's like, but he goes, that, that, he goes, it's the laziness in the depiction. And so it has been a through line of probably much to the frustration of, of the TV, you know, folks. Like, I think they like much more simple, we can put this character in a box here, over here. Um, I just find it endlessly more interesting. And, you know, we just got over the big cultural moment of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was all gray. Um, right. Nobody was really. And, and, and I think, you know, uh, I think people were frustrated at the end. They wanted people to be all good or all bad. And the world is just not like that. And best fiction, the best movies, the best characters, they're never one thing. It's boring. I don't want to watch that. It's, that's porridge. <laughs> I don't want to eat that. And how about you, David? What, what's your take on that? Well, I suppose I've played a lot of um, bad guys <laughs> in my career, um, really, and it's, it's it's true. I would say, I mean, and uh, for an actor, you have to find something you you identify with, no matter who you're playing. Um, now, that's sometimes a little easier if it's something a little more car- cartoony, a little more caricatured. But when it when it comes down to, I did a film some years ago called The Boy in Striped Pajamas, where oh, I was yeah, playing extensively the, 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 the Commandant of Auschwitz, which is the hardest character I've ever had to play in terms of trying to find anything one could right. relate to. And it was, but the, 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 the tone of that story was about a... a, a, a a Nazi who who was raising um, a, a child, and and the, the you know if you've seen the film, the child is the, the hero of the film, and I I um, I found a way through to understanding that by reading the actually the literally the autobiography if you can believe it of uh, Rudolf Hoss who was the um, uh, the um, commandant of Auschwitz, wow, and seeing a man. Uh, you know, this is a book recommended for all to read by Primo Levi. Uh, uh, you know, the, the the banality of evil, and 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 this, this is an incredible. It taught me a lot about playing other evil characters because it was a man who obviously loved his children, loved his wife. I think I thought initially because it wasn't the trepanier of the book, I thought he was going to be the bad guy when I first read the first few pages of the script and I'd sort of di- dipped into the book and I'd met Elwood, I thought, aha, he's going to be the one who we turned out is burying the body in the moat and in the swamp. And, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and, and in fact, it turns out not at all. But then again, Trepanier is bad. In, he certainly treats women disgracefully. And he's also, you know, these, well, like I say, he's a, he's a great contradiction. But um, it's, it's, obviously, it's always fascinated me because I've played them so much. Hmm. And Marsha, what do you think for audiences that the takeaway sort of the larger morality messaging here is in, in this piece? Is it is it again that same white man bad? Uh, we destroyed, you know, native culture <laughs> or, or, or is there something bigger to learn here about the coexistence of these groups? Which, again, I think that's a story we haven't seen a lot of is that there was a peaceful coexistence for a time and, yeah. and not for a long time. But there but. But we did do it, and maybe we can find ways to do this again in in ways that we need to now. I didn't know that's hopeful, certainly. But the but this story doesn't seem to be focused on the moment of peaceful coexistence, at least not yet. Right. And right. Annie Prue's story is definitely a story of do you conquer nature, 
Do you live in harmony with nature? And we didn't learn our lesson from the natives who were far more clearly living in harmony with nature, taking only what they need, whereas the Western philosophy seemed to be that um, things are expendable. Trees are expendable. Mm. The relationship of trees and mushrooms is expendable. Forests are expendable. And we and until vast stretches of land were just simply devastated and, and expendable and the environmental consequences. So to me, that that was Annie's story. But will I will fall on the side of hope usually just because you have to. In mm. this story, I think that what was fascinating is that it became a story, or it is a story and will continue hopefully to be, of the haves and have-nots. And mm. what do people do to be the haves? And what do people do to be the, who end up the have-nots? And as we no, in history, the Carnegies, uh, the Rockefellers, the industry barons, they had some pretty odd practices that helped them get where they get. So I think one of those little dangling themes is what do people do to survive? What do people do to get ahead? And when does your moral compass shift? And it seems that even that you have some backstories from, again, the Fille du Bois, even their their stories shifted, their moral compass shifted when they um, were desperate, when they were threatened, and when survival is is threatened. I asked, I said, Elwood, my God, if we do have another season, we should do one episode or maybe the whole season where the <laughs> food is just getting shorter and shorter and shorter, a drought. Because one of both of our favorite books, and I think, David, we might have discussed that too, is The Road. You know, after this, mm. oh, yeah. I oh, love yeah. that book yeah. and this yeah. huge mm. moment of, and that's all about moral compass, walking down that road of life. Do you help people? Is it dog eat dog or is it not dog eat dog? And so, in this little environment that Elwood has now taken over from Annie, there's, to me, there's that underneath question do you bring the community together? Do you help people or is it dog eat dog? And people represent different sides of that. Um, I'm curious also how revenge, how anger suddenly will let you do something maybe you never would have done before. Because at the end of episode eight, I think my character, Mathilde, is very angry, <laughs> very angry and very yeah. kind of devastated. So I'm curious to see if there was another life. David used a word when you talk about moral compass and um, Elwood the same that's relatable. I think that relatability is what um, even the most heinous people will have something relatable, like Sopranos, right? He's got that charm. Mm -hmm. Like David said, you're raising kids. There's got to be something relatable because we all cross the line. Otherwise, it's just, <laughs> you know, right. a villain with a mustache right. that you're twisting. And, and it's fun to watch, but it's much, but it's not, but you're not moved by it. Well, can I, Marcia, you're, you're hitting on something that's interesting is from a writing standpoint, because I, mean, I have a very dim or dark view of humanity. And I think that what, what what's echoing in both your answers for me is really interesting as a writer, because I think that people that don't acknowledge that people that lie and don't admit to those urges, those dark urges. And I think that's the job of an actor to go, I have, I've thought those things. I haven't acted on them, but I've thought those things. And I think, you know, we're in this culture now where people, you know, um, they don't, they don't admit that. And, and I think that's part of accepting other people. And they don't admit those flaws in other people too. These people were trying to survive. They were trying to make their fortune. They'd got on a boat with nothing to come here to get a piece of buggy, muddy land. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you there was none of that over in Europe. These young right. women who had nothing, 
they were gonna they were gonna be you know relegated their families for for centuries to poverty got on a boat to come here to try to marry a man to get a piece of land you know that's the history of colonialization that's the history of like and if you look at going back to the the question about the women uh that they were the single biggest resource it was there in the story they the French were here. Great. They couldn't hold the land. They didn't have the women here to set up the culture. They didn't have the women here to have children and to raise families and to raise families that could then go out and conquer the woods. Um, history was written by men. So that's so part, it gets elided in the history of North America. Um, but you know, again, as Marsha pointed out, the women in this story were as much a resource as the trees were as much a resource as the beaver pelts were. They were, they were this thing that were brought this commodity that was brought this way and back was sent timber and beaver pelts for hats. Um, it just, it's commerce. It's always been commerce. We're doing the same thing right now in Silicon Valley. It's the same thing. Yes. It's a, foundation that's persisted for many yeah. many many years yeah. hence my hence my dim view yeah. <laughs> well we we appreciate you channeling your dim view into a very yeah. beautiful piece of television <laughs> you. you like my segue that yes, that's, that's good it's po- very positive <laughs> as marcia says we have to lean on that 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 hope little glimmer of hope and everything because otherwise it's just too bleak but I do thank all of you for being here. Uh, congratulations on quite a feat uh, of acting and producing and really just, wow, what a, what a slice of history that we're all being able to in, uh, enjoy right now. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. A big thank you again to creator Elwood Reed, Marsha Gay Harden, and David Thewlis. There's more about Barkskins and National Geographic's 2020 Emmy contenders at natgeotv.com FYC. I'm Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.